welcome to episode 85 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On today's episode, I talk to Dr. Adam Hubrick, Assistant Professor and English Education Coordinator for the English Department at Sam Houston State University. I really enjoyed getting to see students come alive. Um, you know, asking them sort of real questions about themselves and their lives and uh, asking them to think through those things and watching them, you know, do that in their writing. Um, it's like a switch goes on, right? And, and they go from, you know, kind of glossed over like, oh, you know, this is a required course and I don't want to be here uh, to, to a couple weeks in and, you know, they come to class excited uh like like uh hey uh, adam look i have this draft um you know that i that i worked on and, and I'm, I'm excited to talk with you about it yeah. uh, and it's just so exhilarating you know to be a part of that and to see them uh you know kind of come into themselves in that way you'll hear more from dr hubrig in a bit but first i want to direct your attention to a new resource from across the disciplines journal Volume 18, Issues 1 and 2 of Across the Disciplines from guest editors Giza Kirsch, Romeo Garcia, Caitlin Burns Allen, and Walker Smith is now available. From the promotional materials, quote, In this special double issue, authors explore what it means to unsettle archival research across the disciplines. Reflect on how to respond to and counteract and resist racist colonial histories. And consider the prospect of traversing reciprocal, community-based, and or decolonial archival practices. Contributors offer both critiques of archiving as a set of institutional practices, ideologies, and conventions and introduced nuanced tactics of critical, communal, and digital archiving within and against systems of power. As such, this special double issue initiates an important cross-disciplinary conversation by bringing archivists, librarians, and information scientists into dialogue with rhetorical scholars doing archival work. See Rawson 2018, Caswell 2016. Contributors in part one called Unsettling Archival Studies discuss how tactical archival practices can decenter, reshape, unsettle, and rewrite traditional archival methodologies with a particular focus on the ethics of archival praxis. In part two, called Bearing Witness in Unsettling Ways, contributors draw on multimodal and digital technologies to unsettle that which appears as legible or true in order to explore the kinds of, quote, othered histories, memories, languages, and or identities whose archiving is considered in part one. The thread that binds this special double issue is the theme unsettling the archives and each contributor's 
praxis of unsettling that which is constituted is as legible histories, public memories, and or knowledges works in conjunction with efforts to create spaces of and for interventions and anti-colonial, decolonial, communal, and or transnational perspectives and approaches. End quote. I hope you'll take a look at this special double issue of writing across the disciplines. Adam Hubrick, they, them, is an autistic, multiply disabled caretaker of cats. They live in Huntsville, Texas, where they work as an assistant professor and English education coordinator for the English department at Sam Houston State University. Their research and teaching explore disability, especially at the intersection of pedagogy, queer rhetorics, community literacy, as well as teacher education. Adam's research is featured in College Composition and Communication, the Community Literacy Journal, the Journal of Multimodal Rhetorics, and Reflections, a journal of community-engaged writing and rhetoric. And their words have also found homes in Brevity, the Disability Visibility Blog, and Taco Bell Quarterly. Adam is currently co-editor of the Anti-Ableist Composition Blog Space and an advisory board member for the Coalition of Community Writing. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Adam Hubrig. Tell me, who are you? What's your name, your title, your institution, and your role there? What do you do? Yeah, thank you, Charles. Uh, I'm I'm Adam Hubrid. Um, I work as an assistant professor at Sam Houston State University. Uh, I'm I'm in my second year there, uh, meaning I started uh, during the pandemic. Um, <clears throat> so I'm I'm still sort of uh, learning my role. Uh, because, you know, the just higher education as a whole has kind of uh, been, been uh, trying to figure out what, what we're doing. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm still kind of learning my role in my new institution. I uh, do, I, I co-coordinate the, uh, uh, the English education program for the department. Um, and I am also co-chair of the uh, composition committee. Um, instead of having a WPA, we have a committee that um, kind of handles those those things. What was it like starting a job and continuing a job and maybe even getting a job during the yeah. pandemic? Um, so the the last thing, the the last time I was out in public before the lockdown started, um, I was on uh, the University of Nebraska-Lincoln campus where I did my graduate work um, and, you know, telling my advisor and my mentors, uh, hey, I got this job offer, right? Um, so, so, you know, the last thing I did before the, the shutdown started um, was, you know, hugging people and, and, you know, letting them know, you know, about this life change that was about to happen. 
And it was literally the next day I got a call from my doctor. Uh, I'm, I ha- have uh, some health issues that, that leave me immunocompromised. Uh, so the next day I got a call from my doctor, like, no, you need to stay home. Uh, and it was about a week after that, that, you know, lockdowns kind of started for everybody. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's just really been surreal. Uh, my partner and I, you know, moved uh, from Nebraska to Texas during during the pandemic. We um, were unable to see the place we were moving into. Uh, so, you know, just from the two pictures available on the internet, we chose uh, a place to live and and had to move. And um, yeah, it, it, the the whole first year, I worked in my new department. Um, you know, I had not met or seen most of my uh, colleagues. Uh, there because, uh, you know, most of us were working from home, uh, at least, you know, mostly. Um, so yeah, it was such a, such a strange time, uh, to, to start teaching in a new place. So you mentioned the university of Nebraska Lincoln, uh, which is where you got your PhD with a dissertation titled preparing citizens, composing publics, but you also got your master's degree at the University of Nebraska. Tell us a little about your master's project and what led you to the University of Nebraska. Yeah, Um, so my master's degree was in in creative writing poetry. Um, I uh, had read Ted Kuzer's poetry. Uh, He writes a lot about rural life. Um, And I grew up in a, a rural town in North Dakota um, and, you know, Ted Kuzer would write these poems about um, uh, shotgun shells, about spiders on fence posts, about cows, about, you know, farm life. Uh, and, and I just was in awe, right? I, I hadn't felt like I had really seen uh, much of the, the context I grew up in represented in poetry. Uh, so I wanted to, to study with him. Uh, so I... I uh, did my master's degree there. Um, but while I was doing that work, I started adjuncting uh, at Southeast Community College in Lincoln, Nebraska, and just really fell in love with, with teaching and working with students. Um, and I remember being halfway through the master's program and saying, um, you know, can, can, I, can I switch? And, you know, the answer was, no, you're too far in the program uh, for that. Uh, but I, I ended up uh, taking the Summer Institute after I had finished my uh, MA program uh, in the Nebraska Writing Project, their National Writing Project site, and just getting connected with other composition scholars and, you know, just developing this, this love for, for teaching and, and writing and working with students. And I just couldn't get enough of that. Uh, and I became, uh, you know, very involved with the, the Writing Project site there. Uh, and I you know, after adjuncting for a couple of years, applied to come back and uh, do a do a PhD in composition. I mentioned, well, first of all, this switch, this desire for composition studies um, is something I, I hear a lot when I talk to graduate students. Like I did my master's degree in literature too. So I feel that, right? That there's this this switch and it and it comes so often with the realization that you love being a teacher 
Right. Yeah. And so what was it for you about teaching that really pushed you in this direction? Um, I really enjoyed getting to see students come alive, um, you know, asking them sort of real questions about themselves and their lives and uh, asking them to think through those things and watching them, you know, do that in their writing. Um, it's like a switch goes on, right? And, and they go from, you know, kind of glossed over like, oh, you know, this is a required course and I don't want to be here uh, to, to a couple weeks in. And, you know, they come to class excited, uh, like, like uh, hey, uh, Adam, look, I have this draft, um, you know, that I, that I worked on and, and I'm excited to talk with you about it. Yeah. Uh, and it's just so exhilarating, you know, to be a part of that, and to see them, uh, you know, kind of come into themselves in that way. You mentioned adjuncting. That's a role that many of us have held as well. And so I'm sure that you took many of the, the lessons, right? And, and that learned as an adjunct, as an early, early career teacher into your PhD program. And you wrote your dissertation, which I mentioned the title was Preparing Citizens, Composing Publics. Tell us a little bit about your dissertation project, maybe some of the conclusions drawn, but also where was this project born? What was its genesis and why was it important? Yeah, thank you, Charles. Um, I fell backwards into it. Um, I uh, am, am a disabled person and I was deeply upset by some of the bills proposed in the Nebraska legislature. Um, and I ended up, you know, learning about how that process works, um, how, you know, bills are proposed, um, how, how the Nebraska legislature uh, allows for citizens to give testimony on any uh, bills. Um, and I thought, you know, this is actually really um, a really important and necessary literacy skill. And I thought, you know, I have been tasked to teach this course called Writing in Communities. Uh, what if I build the class about doing this kind of uh, public facing, uh, you know, immediately meaningful writing? Uh, so, so students um, would write specifically about a legislative bill um, that impacted a community they felt they were a part of. I let them, you know, identify that broadly. Um, and I had students think of communities that would have never occurred to me, right? Like volunteer fire departments, um, amazing. And the student did incredible work, but I would have never in a million years imagined, you know, I would have a student doing that kind of a project looking for, um, you know, better funding and protection for for rural volunteer fire and ambulance crews, um, you know, uh, not something I, I imagined. Um, but students would uh, spend roughly half the semester researching the bill. Uh, depending on the legislative calendar, uh, it might be in different order, uh, but they would both uh, go and give testimony uh, at the state capitol on the bill they chose and researched. Uh, as well as prepare the other people in this community they identified they wanted to work with, uh, prepare other people 
to uh, write their elected officials and uh, be able to give testimony on the bill. Um, so not just doing this literacy work themselves, but knowing enough about it to train others to do that work. Um, and I you know, was just so surprised by how involved my students got in, in this labor um, and uh, just you know, seeing some of the work, um, students uh, working on uh, a, a bill, um, you know, currently feminine hygiene products are taxed with a luxury tax um, and seeing my students, uh, some of them gravitated towards that bill, uh, working to remove the luxury tax from feminine hygiene products. Um, just seeing how involved they got going, showing up to protests, uh, you know, students who would never have thought about doing these things before, you know, taking it on themselves to, to have this, this level of commitment. Um, and it also ended up being work I was doing outside of my classes. Um, I was working with a group of other disabled people. Some uh, were students on, on the university campus. Others were, were disabled community members. And there was a bill proposed uh, that would encourage public school teachers to use force and restraint on students, um, except there was no training uh, in, in the bill, right? Uh, and other states that had passed measures like this, it, uh, the force and restraint teachers were using had harmed um, mostly disabled students. Um, and it was disproportionately used on disabled students and students of color. Um, in fact, while the bill was being proposed, uh, there was a, a young autistic man in California killed um, from you know the same the same kind of measure. Um, so uh, you know we felt very strongly about this, and you know we're doing this work ourselves uh, and engaging in writing our officials um, and uh, uh, going and, and giving testimony. Um, at, at the Capitol about this bill. Adam, I must just stop and say that to hear you talk about the things you're doing in the classroom and the community is just so thrilling as someone who, well, you're just inspiring me to just do better in my own classroom, right? Um, especially when I take on community-engaged work. Um, once you finished at the University of Nebraska, you mentioned you were like a pandemic hire, right? Yeah. I love that. And you moved to Sam Houston State, which is in Huntsville, Texas. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about, and I know the pandemic, but tell me a little bit about life and in Huntsville, life at Sam Houston State. As much as yeah. you've been able to immerse yourself in the middle of a global pandemic. Yeah. Um so um, I, I've enjoyed uh, teaching there, working with the students here at Sam Houston. Um, we serve, uh, you know, a very diverse student population. Um, we are becoming a, a Hispanic-serving institution. Uh, I don't think we have like the official designation quite yet, but I know that's something on the horizon. Um, we work with um, a lot of first-generation students. Um, we, you know, serve a lot of, of non-traditional students. Um, I've, I've really enjoyed working with our students here. Uh, I also am responsible for working with 
our English education students. Um, so these young people about to be English teachers themselves. So tell me a little bit about the work that you've been doing with these pre-service teachers who are learning about being teachers during the pandemic. So much of this service is invisible. So tell us a little bit about what you do and how this program has evolved throughout the pandemic. Yeah, um, you know, I, re I really feel for our pre-service teachers right now. Um, I, I see them, many of them struggling. Uh, they are trying to do their pre-service teaching during a pandemic, trying to do class observations. Um, I've had students put in the position that their supervising teacher, you know, got, got sick, um, you know, developed COVID themselves. And uh, the pre-service teachers then, you know, are put in this impossible position that, it, you know, it is their third, their fifth, their seventh day ever in a classroom uh -huh. and they're being asked to, you know, teach, um, you know, at least for a while until they can find, you know, someone else to, to step in and, you know, visiting with my students, uh, talking with them, uh, you know, trying to, to support them and also let them know you're right, this isn't fair. And I'm sorry, this is happening to you. Um, you know, nobody should have a trial by fire like this. Um, and, and trying to do what I can to support them and help them, uh, you know, through these situations. One of the other things that I know that you do is provide support and get support from a tremendous network of folks in rhetoric and composition studies, specifically graduate students and early career faculty. And this, again, is, is labor that is oftentimes invisible. Tell us a little bit about forming those relationships, sending those Zoom invitations, right? Supporting other folks who might be disabled, queer, or reside at those intersections, right? Tell us a little bit about that work and, and what it means to you to do it. Yeah, um, so I have been really inspired uh, by Leah Lakshmi Pipesness and Samarasina's uh, book, Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice. Um, and, and through it, um, they describe their experiences uh, in care networks, um, their work providing care labor, supporting other disabled queer people. Um, and they really point out the inequalities uh, in this labor that uh, femme disabled queers of color are often expected to do so much more work um, than their otherwise privileged counterparts. Right. Uh, and, you know, I, I think about this and try to attend to those things, uh, but, but I see in academia, a lot of those same conditions are replicated, right? Uh, where, there, there's just unequal amounts of labor asked of, of femmes, of queer people, of disabled people, uh, especially people who occupy, you know, multiple marginalized identities. Um, and the way this work is, is gendered and, and racialized, um, uh, um, it's, it's all 
you know, just very disheartening. Uh, I have been so lucky to receive support and mentorship uh, and a network of other disabled people um, who have done so much to support me. And I, I try to do that sort of care work for others uh, and being supportive uh, of, of them um, and, and uh, you know, providing whatever small things I can. Uh, you know, maybe it's sending a small care package to, to a colleague who's ill. Uh, maybe it's setting up a Zoom meeting to talk with a graduate student about how to navigate asking for accommodations. Uh, those are really some of some of the most meaningful work I feel I do, uh, you know, as, as a scholar and a human. Um, and, it, you know, the, this isn't something that's recorded on a CV or anything. There's no professional recognition of these things. Uh, but, but disabled and, and marginalized scholars do so much of this, this care work, this support labor uh, that, you know, just is invisibilized. More after this. Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making and rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at TheBigRet. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at TheBigRhetorical at gmail.com. Welcome back. So let me ask you a big question. Maybe it's just a loaded question. What can listeners of this podcast, what can they do? How can they deconstruct this inequitable labor system? Yeah, well, so, so I think a lot of the labor exists because of the structural inequalities, right? right? Uh, if we already supported disabled students better, I wouldn't be on a two-hour Zoom call with a graduate student trying to work out with them how to ask for accommodations, right? Um, so, you know, obviously that's the big answer. Uh, I, I think the smaller, more immediate answer uh, is we all need to be more aware and conscientious of the privileged spaces we occupy. Um, you know, I'm a, a white person um, and I'm non-binary, but I'm, you know, very masculine coded. And I need to think about how those things shape my interactions with other people. Um, and I need to be willing to take on more care work and not always be asking uh, femme disabled queer people of color to, to you know, shoulder all of the care work. Um, so, so thinking about our own positionalities in this labor um, 
you know, before you ask, you, you send the email um, as if you're a non-disabled person sending an email to a disabled person, asking them a question like, you know, maybe consider if you could Google that first, because uh, sometimes the answer is yes. Uh, so, so I think, you know, just really paying attention to those power dynamics in that labor uh, is the, the smaller thing we can do uh, while we're also working towards and thinking about how we, um, you know, handle, deal with interlocking, overlapping structural inequalities. One of the, one of the things I'm most excited about, Adam Hubrig, is your upcoming guest edited teaching English in the two-year college issue. You actually are writing, you wrote the introduction. It's called mm -hmm. Emphasizing Access and Open Access Higher Education, One Disabled Person's Plea to Two-Year College English Teacher Scholar Activists. Tell us a little bit about this project. I know that I saw the CFP last year. I think I actually promoted it on the podcast. You did. But Thank you. I wonder how is the project, where did it come from? How is it going? And what should readers expect when it comes out next year? Yeah. Um, so I was um, upset to find that in TETYC's history, in, a, in you know, roughly the last 30 years, there have been five articles that center disability. Um, and, and I think this is just such you know, a, an injustice uh, as more than half of disabled college students attend to your colleges. Um, that is, um, it, it just means we've so greatly under theorized, uh, you know, best practices yeah. for working with disabled students in the two-year college. Um, so, so I had been in discussion uh, with, with uh, Darren Jensen, the incoming editor of TETYC and you know, we we just had a discussion about that, and he invited me to do the special issue, um, and I'm very excited uh, about the work the authors in the special issue are doing. Uh, there's a symposium that will look at disability at the two-year college, um, kind of across institutional contexts, including our classrooms, uh, but also in two-year college writing centers, and also in uh, writing across the curriculum programs, and also in rethinking basic writing uh, through the lens of disability. Um, the, the work article authors are doing in that work will look at um, analyzing how community college writing centers, you know, portray disability uh, in, in their, on their websites. Uh, it's going to look at uh, really thinking about how neurodiversity changes the, the English classroom. Um, and we also have thinking about um, neurodiverse students uh, in terms of writing and collaboration and the authors are all doing great work. Uh, I'm, I'm so proud of all of those pieces and excited to see them in print. So you definitely alluded to this, but as someone who got their start in the two-year college system, like their first job teaching, um, I'd like to ex expand a little bit, um, interrogate further, if you will. Why, why was it important to position the focus on the two-year college system for this edited collection beyond simply the journal, right? Because why was that important? 
Yeah. So, so we know most disabled students attend two-year colleges, um, but uh, while it's hard to get, you know, actual complete information on this, uh, we also know most disabled faculty teach at two-year colleges. Um, myself, uh, as a disabled person who was adjuncting, I knew there was no way I could continue doing that work in the long term. Um, my, you know, chronic overlapping chronic illnesses would just not allow for it uh, because for, you know, two years I was teaching, you know, as many as seven or eight classes at a time, uh, as well as working, you know, up to 20-ish hours in, in the writing center at one community college. Um, and just the, the way these things are, you know, really untenable for anyone, but especially for uh, disabled faculty trying to balance, uh, you know, taking care of themselves and managing uh, the complications that can come with disabilities while doing that kind of labor. Um, and I know there was no way when I was doing that adjuncting work that I could have put the time and labor necessary into doing the special issue then. Uh, but, but I also, you know, didn't want to forget about what life was like as a disabled adjunct. Uh, so I'm, I'm grateful I have the opportunity to do that work now. Absolutely. Let's talk about two pieces that are forthcoming from you, Adam. And if it's okay, let's talk about them in tandem. You've got care work, queer crip labor practices, and queer generosity forthcoming in QED, Journal of Queer World Making. And you have an invited book chapter titled Chronicity Rhetorics as Queer Crip Activism in the Rutledge Handbook of Queer Rhetorics. And that's edited by, by Jonathan Alexander and Jack, Jacqueline Rhodes. Those are forthcoming in 2022. So I wanted to talk about them in tandem because I know just from talking to you a little bit that their, their premises go together, right? Some of the work that you're doing overlaps. So maybe you could walk, walk us through um, how those, what those articles are and, and how they're connected and the work that you're doing. Um, so a lot of this work comes from, you know, thinking about multiple marginalizations and, how as a disabled queer white person, you know, I, I inhabit some privileged spaces and, and uh, other spaces uh, that are, are sites of, of oppression. And it, it's just really frustrating to me that as a disabled person, uh, so many queer spaces are not um, disability friendly and that so many spaces for disabled people are exclusionary of, of queer people or people of color. Um, so, so looking at how these things intersect, um, the, the care work piece is an especial issue that's theorizing queer generosity. Mm. Um, and, and as a disabled person, uh, I think the way I hear the word generosity is, is maybe different. Um, mm. I immediately thought of um, uh, GoFundMe pages, right? And how so often disabled people are asked to kind of package their traumas to get funding that 
only exists because of all kinds of structural problems in the first place, right? Um, pe people have to package uh, the, these things they've experienced in such a way that positions them as, as worthy of receiving care. Um, and, and to me, that, that's just so heartbreaking. Um, and I think of, you know, the, the kinds of care work I've needed to survive uh, and, and the kinds of care work I've, I've done for others. Um, and, and I'm thinking about what those things mean um, in, in terms of queer generosity um, and, you know, how that maybe pushed this conversation uh, uh, Jonathan Alexander and Timothy Olsek are the the editors of the special issue, mm. um, and I, you know, I'm just really grateful uh, that that they uh, invited me to also um, think through this question of queer generosity through disability. Um, the other uh, piece, thinking about chronicity rhetorics. Um, I am really interested in how so often we see gender and sexuality as something that's stable, right? Um, and that's just absurd to me. Nothing in our bodies is stable. You know, even when we're sitting as still as we can, you know, our, our blood's moving and every atom in our body is, is spitting and nothing, nothing in our body is ever stable. Uh, and, and disabled people know this, right? Like we, we've kind of feel this instability. Um, so, so I'm thinking through uh, sexuality and gender um, through disability and how, you know, for many disabled people, um, what sex acts might be possible for us from day to day can be changed, can be different, and how there's a different understanding um, with many uh, disabled people about what sexuality and consent mean, right? And, and can look like. Um, and I think there's actually a lot of uh, agency that, that uh, queer disabled people can reclaim there. Um, uh, it was Chanel Gallant uh, who, who described um, disabled people as being at once um, uh, fetishized, uh, but also uh, like publicly disavowed, right? So there's there's a private fetishization of many disabled people that makes us often targets for sexual abuse, um, but but also in in public um, there's like this uh, pushing away of disabled people as having sexual agency, um, and the way those things operate together, I think just does so much harm, and I think. Uh, chronicity is a way to push back against that denial of agency. So a, a question from a neophyte, if you will, right? Yeah. How is your work pushing back against this? Yeah, um, so I'm looking at um, different disabled activists and how they reclaim sexual agency. Okay. Um, and it, it's so complicated. Uh, the, the way these things intersect. Um, I have been following the work of, of Andrew Gerza, um, uh, who is a uh, disabled queer man. Um, and the way he writes about his sexuality and 
um, you know, kind of reclaiming sexual agency. Uh, and, you know, there, there's a kind of grief um, that he expresses in his writing um, about, uh, you know, so many people write him off, right? Uh, are not um, even thinking that, that he may be capable of having some kind of sexual life. Um, and how that in a way is, is crushing, uh, to disabled people. Uh, but then, you know, the work he does, uh, going out and, and actively reclaiming and making spaces for conversations about queer disabled sexuality. Um, he has a podcast called, um, uh, uh, disability after dark, um, that, that talks about, uh, disabled people and sexuality and, and the work he's doing is incredible. Right, uh, the work of of uh, Sins and Ballad, um, a performance troupe that centers on um, intersectional disability issues uh, in reaffirming disabled people's sexuality. Um, I, I'm really encouraged by these kinds of examples. Um, in some of the other work I do, I'm looking at how sort of the biomedical gaze desexualizes disabled people, how there is just not um, uh, information, you know, available to disabled people about their, their sexuality and especially for queer disabled people, right? Um, the, there, there isn't a pamphlet for that, right, uh, <laughs> at, at the clinic. Um, so just thinking about ways to affirm, um, especially queer disabled people and their sexuality I think is important and necessary work. So here's a very higher education question. Yeah. <laughs> Apologies up front. You're doing you're doing all this magnificent work. Some of it simply groundbreaking. Thank so I wonder, yeah, where do you go from here? What's the trajectory? of this work, which is so personal for you. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you for bringing up the, the personal aspect. Um, um, my, my colleague, uh, Christina Cedillo has written about how the, the personal aspect of this work creates these levels of emotional labor, right? Um, so as I was writing this chapter about chronicity rhetorics, uh, actually, you know, the, the the day before I submitted the chapter, I was preparing to go in for you know this major abdominal surgery um, to to um, kind of outfit me with mesh where I had lost a lot of abdominal muscle um, and and resection my intestine and it, you know it, it's so embodied right it, it's. It's not simply an intellectual exercise. Uh, these are things, you, you know, the, the marginalized people taking on these kinds of work, uh, works that intersect with our, our lived experience. Um, we, we can't take the evening off, right, from thinking about these things. Uh, you know, I, I write the book chapter and then I'm in the hospital for a month, um, very much living the thing I was writing about, right? Um, and I, I think of, you know, our colleagues who are 
scholars of color writing about um, structural racism in our institutions. And just all, all of the, the extra labor taken on um, when, when multiply marginalized people are writing and researching about our lived experiences. Um, I have been really interested, uh, your, your question, Charles, about what, what I'm interested in doing next. Um, as I've become more limited um, in what I can physically do, uh, I, I, I'm at a point in my life uh, because of disability where driving has become you know, very difficult uh, for me. I can't walk very far, um, so, so my physical mobility is just really limited now. And um, I think about the communities uh, I've been able to find and build and work with online. Um, so I'm really interested in paying more attention to how disabled people build and find communities online and how we advocate for ourselves in those, those spaces uh, and how we, you know, look after and support each other. Um, you know, there's been moments in my life where I've been confined to a bed for weeks on end, months, months. Um, and, uh, you know, understanding how people who are physically incapable of leaving their beds are still able to build community uh, is ju just such an important project to me. Um, uh, I'm, I'm also um, excited about thinking about these issues as community engagement and as activism. Um, shortly, uh, in the next couple of weeks, um, there's two upcoming calls I'm really excited to be able to share with you. Uh, one is uh, a call for the Community Literacy Journal that I'm going to be co-editing uh, with Christina Cedillo. Um, the, the special issue uh, is focusing on accessibility. Um, and while uh, Christine and I are using disability justice as kind of a lens to theorize what that means, we are really thinking about accessibility broadly, right? What does it mean to make community literacy work accessible uh, for people of color, for you know, scholars who are parents, for community members um, with, with disabilities? What does access work mean um, for people doing prison literacy? What does access work mean for people doing food justice? Um, so we're, we're really excited about that work um, and we're hoping that that kind of work um, really gets at these issues of invisibilized labor. Um, the other call, uh, I'm working with members um, of the, the uh, Anti-Ableist Composition Collective. Uh, it was started by, by Cody Jackson, uh, who you've uh, interviewed on this podcast previously, uh, just a gem of a human being. Uh, he, he created yeah. that space. Yeah, uh, Cody's incredible. Um, and um, it, it's now I um, and, and uh, three graduate students doing that work um, of, of kind of maintaining that space. Uh, and together as a collective, we're going to be guest editing uh, an, an upcoming issue of the journal Spark um, focused on uh, disability justice and activism. Um, so, so both of those calls will be coming shortly um, in the, the month of October. How exciting. So 
what are you doing the rest of the day today? Today? Um, uh, funny you should ask. I'll be meeting with some graduate students uh, this afternoon uh, to talk about their experiences being disabled in higher education uh, and trying to help them make plans and, and navigate um, and you know be, be able to do that continue doing the work they want to do um, while being disabled people. Um, often in higher education, that's not easy. Um, so, so I will be doing that this afternoon uh, and um, that, that'll probably be most of my day. Yeah. Thank you, Adam, for all the work you do for us in uh, our in our field and our discipline. And uh, and I hope thank you. you have a great thank you for this podcast and uh, for this space. Uh, we were talking before the interview uh, about the the importance of of having a space for uh, composition and rhetoric scholars, especially you know those of us who you know may be one of two people or the only person in our department that does composition and rhetoric work to have the space to connect. Um, so thank you for building this space. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Adam Hubrick. They are doing such smart and important work. I only hope they continue to get the recognition they deserve. Thanks for all you do, Dr. Hubrick, for both your seen and unseen labor. The Big Rhetorical Podcast, Season 5, has only a few more episodes left, so make sure you are tuning in. I'll be back next week with another new interview. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media. Exalt Digital Media, not-for-profit. This podcast was recorded on the sacred lands of the Tuscarora people, and we recognize and respect the people of the Kahari, Eastern Band of Cherokee, Haliwa Saponi, Meharan, Okanichi, Band of Saponi, Saponi, and Waccamaw Suen. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lang, Grapes, and Dark Room.